Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. And welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Blue-green algae was found in one of Lake Lemon's overflow ponds. According to a notice from the Lake Lemon Conservancy District Office on Thursday, the toxic algae is located on the east end of the lake, south of the Long Causeway, near the Monroe and Brown County line. Sarah Powers of the IU Clean Lakes program discovered the blue-green algae. Powers said it is present because the pond isn't connected to Lake Lemon and it has nothing to disturb it. According to the notice, people and pets should stay away from the pond. Blue-green algae produces toxins that, be- that can be potentially fa- fatal to people, dogs, and other animals. Lake Lemon Conservation District Manager Adam Casey said the algae should only last for a few weeks. Casey said the algae-affected pond's water cannot mix with the main lake itself. More information on blue-green algae and the monitoring of Indiana lakes can be found at the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. The Department of Natural Resources is asking bow hunters to keep track of any animals that they spot. Volunteers will fill out a count sheet for all wildlife they see while hunting and also keep track of the time they spend in the woods. The DNR says data obtained through the project called Archer's Index will help DNR officials make informed decisions on how to better maintain Indiana's wildlife. By analyzing animal population data, the DNR can determine what type of animals to open for hunting. In a press release issued Thursday, the DNR said over 15 different animal species were recorded by past Archer Index volunteers. Among recent changes in area wildlife are an increase of bobcat sightings and a decrease of red and gray fox populations. Volunteers can contact the DNR at DFW at dnr.in.gov. Also in local news, the Monroe County Parks and Recreation Board is exploring the possibility of repurposing a materials recovery facility, or MRF building. Kelly Whitmer, Assistant Administrator with Monroe County Parks and Recreation, said the idea is to turn the building into an athletic facility at Karst Farm Park. Whitmer presented the idea to the Monroe County Commissioners in their August 2nd work session, but said the Parks Board cannot fund the project alone. The Park Board wants to know if the Commissioners support the idea of repurposing the MRF building at the Cars Farm Park, and would the Commissioners financially support the transport, construction, and amenities needed to make this building operational for athletic activities? Would the Commissioners financially support other capital items such as a small restroom building, Uh, improvements to the parking lot, pedestrian routes, and driveway that would be needed for public safety and to be compliant with the building codes pertaining to a 200-foot by 60-foot building. The Solid Waste Management District Board approved buying the building shell in 2015 after deliberating for more than six years and constructing a MRF. 
The building currently sits at the Anderson landfill exposed to the elements. Whitmer addressed a few pros and cons of the project. If the side panels and the roof panels are damaged, that's $45,000. So your building that was valued at $82,000 now is less. Whitmer said on the upside the building, quote, could last 100 years, unquote. So that is 100 years of use by youth, families, and adults with a variety of athletic endeavors. The cost of building and maintaining the athletic facility is unknown at this time. Wilmer said the Parks Board believes rental of the proposed athletic facility will pay for, pay for its utility bill, which is estimated to run $12,000 per year. The Salt Wister should have never bought the building in the first place, and that's why it's laid on the ground for two years over there. Um, not that I'm against repurposing, but I'm just not going to spend a dime on that building out there. Whitmer reiterated the Parks Board is looking to know whether commissioners like the idea of an athletic facility at Karst Farm enough to fund its long term. Commissioner Patrick Stouffer said he can't see spending money on the project. You know, Solid Waste contacted us. This is why we're involved in this. They don't even know if they would, the Park Board wants to do this because the, the financial commitments. Um, but something probably has to be done soon or the answer will be because it's too much rust and we can't put it up and that's that. Um, but the Park Board does not want to do anything because they know they don't have this type of funding. Stouffer's added that the Solid Waste Management District Board has not approved surplusing the building. Whitmer told Stouffer's the question of whether to repurpose the building may soon be moot. You know, Solid Waste contacted us. This is why we're involved in this. They don't even know if they would, the Park Board wants to do this because the, the financial commitments. Um, but something probably has to be done soon or the answer will be because it's too much rust and we can't put it up and that's that. Um, but the Park Board does not want to do anything because they know they don't have this type of funding. Elfers proposed the Solid Waste Management Board contribution money for the project. Because it's their building laying on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. It's in their financial interest to mm -hmm. do something with it, right? So it seems to me that some of the potential costs here lie with that entity, in my opinion. Commissioner Amanda Barge said she would follow up on the issue with Solid Waste Director Tom McLassen, Jr., Stouffer's and Bard said they want Commissioner Julie Thompson's thoughts on the project before making any final decisions. Thomas was absent from Wednesday's work session. And in state news, Indiana environmental groups fighting pollution from large factory farms have changed their tactics. They spent years filing lawsuits and sponsoring legislation against factory farms, and now they're focusing on educating communities about how they can have a voice in the issue. The group's educational efforts concentrate on educating community members about the health risks associated with factory farms, also known as confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. Indiana has more than 3 million hogs, 95,000 cattle, over 22 million egg-laying hens, and 4.7 million broil broiler chickens in CAFOs. The animals produce as much untreated manure as 87 million people, or almost 14 times the state's human population. CAFO waste isn't regulated like human waste and can pose a health hazard to those living nearby. CAFO waste is stored in football field-sized, unlined lagoons near people's homes. Legislation that would have weakened CAFO laws in Indiana was defeated this year. 
The Hoosier Environmental Council says much of the credit belongs to community members who spoke up, saying they wanted tougher laws, not weaker ones. Indiana always ranks as one of the worst states in the U.S. as far as air quality, water quality, and pollution are concerned. A new statewide poll commissioned by Nina Mason Pulliam, Charitable Trust, examined how important environmental issues are to Hoosiers. Of the Indiana residents surveyed, 71% believe that protecting the environment should be given priority, even at the risk of slowing economic growth. 50% are very concerned about pollution in Indiana rivers, lakes, and reservoirs. 41% are very concerned about protecting the state's wildlife, and 37% are very concerned about greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired power plants. Air quality in the state's cities and large towns is of great concern to 34% of those polled, and 28% are very concerned about pollution from concentrated animal feeding operations, or factory farms. Land use and land use policies were very concerning to 22% of those polled. Highly radioactive spent fuel rods from 37 nuclear power plants could move through Hoosier communities soon. Each shipment would contain several times more radioactive material than the Hiroshima bomb. Congress is about to take up legislation, the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act of 2017, that would reopen the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Site in Nevada and build more temporary storage facilities for radioactive waste across the nation, including Indiana. The bill would mean building more temporary storage facilities around the nation to hold high-level radioactive waste from nuclear power plant sites, both current and closed. The bill would mean a doubling of the amount of radioactive waste coming through almost every state by truck, train, and barge. The legislation is being opposed by dozens of environmental groups. They warned the bill would send spent fuel rods from nuclear reactors through 100 major cities in 44 states and 370 congressional districts. Recently, we reported that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service removed Endangered Species Act's protection for gray wolves in several Great Lakes states. However, now there's good news for those animals. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decided that the Fish and Wildlife Service made critical errors in removing those protections. This ruling protects some 3,800 wolves in the region and saves hundreds from being killed each year in Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. The court's decision is at least the eighth time that a federal court has ruled that the Fish and Wildlife Service had wrongly determined gray wolf expectations. Wolves are still absent from over 90% of their historic range in the lower 48 states. They had almost disappeared from the Great Lakes region when they were designated and endangered in the 1970s. They were shot, trapped, and poisoned almost to the point of extinction during the last century. And that's the news for the week. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Today's Eco Report feature covers Duke Energy's proposal to dispose of coal ash at four of its Indiana coal powered plants. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management is currently considering a proposal from Duke Energy to dispose of coal ash at four of the energy company's Indiana facilities. 
The company is looking to close ash deposits at its Cayuga, Gallagher, Gibson, and Wabash River generating stations. The proposal has drawn the scrutiny of environmental groups across the state, including Hoosier Environmental Council, Earth Justice, and the Waterkeeper Alliance. Environmental groups say they're concerned the coal ash won't be properly disposed of. Earth Justice attorney Jennifer Castle said the Duke coal ash closure proposal would threaten Indiana waterways. Coal ash are basically the dregs that are left over once coal is burned. Coal contains a lot of heavy metals, and a lot of those metals don't actually burn um, or don't go through the stacks in, um, when they burn coal at coal generation plants. So they either basically sit at the bottom of the boiler. Um, as what is called bottom ash, or they turn into little tiny pieces of ash which do fly through the, the gas stream that's produced when you burn the coal, and that's called fly ash. Um, there's also a component of coal ash which is produced from flue gas desulfurization, which is a process by which um, sulfur is chemically removed from the gas that goes to coal plants. Some chemicals are added to the gas stream that removes the sulfur and that also creates um, an additional stream of, of, of toxic pollutants. And oftentimes all three of those types of coal ash are mixed together in ponds, um, coal ash lagoons or impoundments at coal plants, um, which are often right next to water bodies because the coal plants have historically used those water bodies to cool their equipment when it gets very hot. Coal ash lagoons have been in place at these sites generally since the beginning of when they started running. So for some of the plants, it's the 60s. For some of them, it's the 50s. Um, and, you know, they needed a place to put this leftover ash that was sticking at the bottom of the boiler and flying through the flying through the gas stream. So they dug these pits basically along, for the most part, right along the water bodies that the plants were located along. Um put the coal ash, the toxic coal ash, in those lagoons and um, mix them with water, which you know, has one benefit, which is that then the coal ash isn't flying through the air. That water helps keep it down. But what, of course, the water does is, because these, um, these lagoons are all unlined, the toxic contaminants that are in the coal ash, which includes arsenic, sometimes mercury, boron, uh, antimony at times, also um, molybdenum, a number, a variety of toxic contaminants leach down into the groundwater that at most of these lagoons is actually sitting in those, the water table is so high that it's actually sitting in the lagoon itself and at others it's just below it. So sometimes when the rivers get high and the water table rises, the water rises up into it. So the contaminants leach down into the groundwater and from that groundwater, end up in the water bodies that are adjacent to them. The, um, the federal coal ash rule, which has been adopted by US EPA and has also been incorporated into Indiana's own requirements, allows for what's called closure in place, this type of closure where you put a impermeable cap above the coal ash. However, um, there are certain qualifications to being able to do that and requirements, one of which is that water must not get into the ash, leachate, which is the leaching of these chemicals, must not get out of the ash. There must not be the possibility that the ash itself will come out of the impoundment. And unfortunately, what we see at all of these Duke Indiana sites is that every single one of those things is possible. So we're strongly urging IDEM to follow the requirements of the CCR rule 
the coal combustion residuals rule and um, require Duke not to just allow this ash, toxic ash, to continue sitting in groundwater, but rather to remove it to dry um, upland lined landfills, which at this point is the best option for disposal of coal ash. Duke Energy spokesperson Don Santoyani says the energy company's projects follow best practices for disposing of coal ash, including regulations by the Environmental Protection Agency. Duke Energy is committed to closing our ash basins in ways that protect our communities and the environment. And I think it's important to note that removing the water from ash basins removes the pressure of that water on the groundwater below. And that step dramatically slows the process of transferring those trace elements in the ash to the groundwater. And it begins improving groundwater quality. So when you go a step further and you install the synthetic cap on top, as Duke Energy has proposed, versus the minimum soil cap that's in the federal requirements, you enhance the protection of groundwater. And we are obviously took into consideration a number of factors in developing our closure plans and the long-term protection of groundwater and the safety of our communities were of utmost importance. I think it's important to note that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency specifically recognizes in the federal coal ash rule that both excavation and capping in place can be equally protective of the environment. That is why they've included both closure methods as options under the federal regulation. And the federal rule also requires monitoring, decades of monitoring of groundwater after a basin is closed. So the potential for any ash in groundwater is accounted for as part of that rigorous basin closure process. And that's also why long-term monitoring is included in the requirements. So if the monitoring, groundwater monitoring, indicates that additional improvements needed after closure, there are a variety of engineering solutions you can take to further protect groundwater in a very targeted way, in short of, you know, short of digging up all the material and relocating it. Because excavating all ash basins, whether science calls for it or not, is really the most extreme and disruptive approach, and it can bring with it decades of impacts to not only the communities around the, uh, the location, but also the environment. Our closure plans take into consideration the location of the basins relative to the nearby bodies of water. Um, it takes into consideration what we expect in terms of long-term, what groundwater is going to look like um, and the protection of that groundwater. But it also accounts for other things, like if you had to dig up the ash and move it, how long that would take, what the emissions impacts, you know, just from trucking and moving that ash, the safety considerations for moving that ash to a new location, and the cost and community impacts. So when we want to look at, uh, you know, whether you can whether closing in place is protective, I think you can say in many cases closing ash basins in place and installing that protective cap on top is more protective of the broader environment because it prevents the need for those additional disposal locations and lowers transportation emissions reduces the community impacts, and also minimizes safety concerns. And you also can look at how long it will take to do the work, which is removing water and capping can occur 
you know, in months or a short number of years, while excavation of larger ash basins could take decades. So all of that is accounted for when we develop the closure plans, and that is something that we we want to look at this from a holistic standpoint to both protect the environment, protect our communities, and make sure we have the long-term safety of, of the ash. It was unclear when the Indiana Department of Environmental Management would make a ruling on the Duke proposal. For WFHB News, I'm Wes Martin. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And it's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana. This is In Nature. That, my friends, is the sound of a right whale. A right whale is a whale that we don't hear much about uh, in this area simply because there are very few of them. There are only about 400 in the North Atlantic and uh, so they're on the endangered species list. It's a large whale up to 59 feet in length and they weigh up to 91 tons which makes them much uh, larger actually than uh, the humpback. Right whales tend to avoid open waters and stay close to peninsulas and bays and on continental shelves as these areas offer greater shelter and abundance of their preferred foods. They were the preferred targets for whalers, thus their name, the right whale, uh, because they are a very docile animal and they feed at the surface and are not particularly afraid of people. So they were very easy to kill. Well, there are only two places where it is allowed for tourists to go out and see the right whales. One is on Gramanan Island in the Bay of Fundy, and the other is out of Machias, Maine. You've been listening to In Nature. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. There will be a ridgetop nature ride at Brown County State Park on Saturday, August 12th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Bring your own bike and helmet and join in for an easy ride that starts at the Nature Center and follows the park road to the park office with stops along the way. Learn about the park and enjoy views with the naturalist. The Heartland chapter of the Sierra Club is having a Morgan Monroe Low Gap Hike on Sunday, August 13th from 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. This will be a moderately strenuous seven-mile hike that will begin at the Low Gap parking lot and end at Bear Lake. A lunch break will be included. Please RSVP via eventbrite.com or by emailing j-e-s-s-e-k-i-r-k-h-a-m at gmail.com to participate. That's jessekirkham at gmail.com. 
Meet at the campground playground at the Paintown State Recreation Center at Monroe Lake to learn about our bald and beautiful eagles on Friday, August 18th from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m. You will learn a little about our eagles, one of Monroe Lake's most notable birds, and also make an eagle craft. Take a tour of native plants on this Native Plants for Pollinators hike with a native plant expert on Saturday, August 19th from 10 a.m. to noon at Olcott Park in Bloomington, Indiana. Learn which pollinators prefer which plants. Discover plants that can attract an array of colorful local insects and hummingbirds to your yard. Pollinators are important and their numbers are falling fast. Learn how you can help them survive. Identification guides and plant resource lists will be provided. Register by August 16th at bloomington.in.gov parks. Tomatoes are coming in. Experience the spectrum of heirloom tomatoes the Bloomington Community Farmers Market has to offer on Saturday, August 19th at Showers Plaza, located at 401 North Morton Street from 9 to 11.30 a.m. You'll be able to sample yellow, orange, purple, and green tomatoes. Expand your horizons beyond the common red tomato. The tomato tasting is free and for all ages. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Cole Stinson, Alex Davis, and Linda Green. The feature was produced by Wes Martin. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar, and our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.